What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Raj Mahal Show. Thank you all for tuning in to episode three. We got an exciting episode for you today where I chat with one of my homies, Vinay Ramesh. Vinay grew up here in the Bay Area, and we actually met through my cousins, Samrat and Shruti, last September at their wedding. He's a Berkeley grad who started a company called Wildfire while in college and just recently sold the company to Open Door, an online digital real estate company based here in San Francisco. We talk about his journey as an entrepreneur. We hear about the acquisition process. And lastly, we chat about our shared experiences in our Indian heritage and culture and what he's doing today to give back to the community. This episode was recorded on Saturday, September 8th. I'm definitely excited to hear everyone's thoughts and hope you all enjoy the discussion. Before we get started, I did want to take a brief moment and reflect on a recent tragedy that affects our whole community. On October 6th, it was confirmed that a California family, Amandeep Singh, Jasleen Gaur, Jasdeep Singh, and their beautiful eight-month daughter, Arhui Deri, were found murdered. Just a devastating loss of life and such a terrible, sad turn of events for our community. Thoughts and prayers with their families and loved ones, and I ask you all to please keep them in your thoughts and prayers. Please see the link on my Instagram page and on my blog at rajmahalajindian.com for a GoFundMe page in memory of the Dairy family. I encourage everyone to donate if you can and help this loving family find peace and justice. Narayana. Thank you, everyone. This is the Raj Mahal Show. I'm your host, Raju Kolaru, and with me today for episode three is my friend, Vinay Ramesh. Vinay, what's going on, man? Thanks for having me, man. I'm, I'm so thrilled to be here. I'm, I'm so thrilled that you invited me to talk, and I, I really appreciate all that you're trying to do uh, of spreading the word and, and what you're trying to do. So thanks for having me. Appreciate that, man. So it's kind of funny how we met. So we met through, I call him my cousin, but so he, and the long story of this is... He, he is my second cousin's brother-in-law, and he married Shruti, who mm-hmm. happens to be your childhood friend. Yeah. So we met in September at their wedding. Right. Right. So you grew up in the South Bay. Where'd you go to school, and what was kind of your upbringing and stuff? Yeah, man, it's a good question. So um, so I, I was born and brought up in uh, like South Bay, San Jose, like Mountain View, that area. And then in uh, third grade, my, my, my parents' job moved to India, so I moved to India, and I spent my third and fourth grade in Chennai and then moved back here, uh, back to America to start like fifth grade onwards. And then once again, I moved back in seventh grade again uh, when my parents' job moved again. And then from seventh through 12th, I spent in boarding school in India. So it's interesting that um, even though I was born here, I would say that I was brought up a significant portion and like a large, like formative experiences of my life were all based in um, like India, like a, kind of a pan-India experience. Nice. So when did you, I guess, come to the U.S. then? Uh, college. Uh, when, I, when I got into college and I came back here for college. Okay. And you went to Berkeley, right? I did. Yeah. Go Bears. So, <laughs> Sorry. Obligatory. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah. Uh, you were there from 2013 to 2017? Uh, at college? Yeah. So 2012 to 2016. 2012 to 2016. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And while you were there, what was that like? What was that experience like at Berkeley? Man, so I, I'm... I, it's, it's so interesting, right? Because I feel like all of our friends have such different experiences in high school, in college, post-college. But I've consistently been that guy that's been like, wow, like high school has been one of the best experiences of my life. College has been somehow even better than that experience. And I think my friends still have a lot of PTSD from like college and from high school for, for obvious reasons. You know, high school yeah. is hard and college is even harder. But I think I just had like a really good time, mostly just because um, 
I didn't spend as much time studying as I should have. Therefore, I don't necessarily have the academic PTSD that my like, like my business, my med school friends, like my uh, like biology friends, they all kind of have. Uh, I don't quite have that. But I, my time in college was one of the most incredible times. I I felt like I I grew as a person. I made a lot of friends that I didn't have the opportunity to make living in India, and uh, I was able to like explore like who I was and what I wanted. And I think. It, Time for introspection is so important during these periods of your life. And I think I was able to have a great, fun time, study occasionally, but also just like uh, enjoy college for what it was, which was just like a melting pot of individuals. And hopefully you learn about yourself from that. That has to be the most dynamic explanation I've had about someone them talking <laughs> about their experience at Berkeley. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> uh, it's funny, like I feel like a lot of people will tell you different things about their experience at Berkeley. And I think totally. to all the things that you just mentioned. So, yeah, totally. I feel, and things like Berkeley's a hard school, man. Like, yeah. um, and and it's like the number one number one public school in the country. Yeah, yeah. And my girlfriend will argue that point because she went to UCLA, and sometimes they're number one. But you know, we all know that like Cal is number one. <laughs> so I'm just saving that for the podcast and for the record. Um, but uh, Cal's a really hard place, and I think a lot of people that come to Cal. This is a different topic altogether. A lot of people that come to Cal. Um, are from like the South Bay and the Bay Area and stuff like that, where there's this like immense pressure on immigrant kids oftentimes to like succeed. And like, what does that pressure actually mean? And what does that pressure actually do long term to people? I think that's like, I think that's, I, I think that's hard. And that's worth discussing as well to a certain extent, because um, I, after a while, is it like your parents putting pressure on you? Or is it the fact that your parents have put so much pressure on you for a long period of time that like you are starting to put that like extreme pressure on yourself at every point in your life that you have to hit excellence at every point in your life. And when there's 20,000 people all seeking excellence in a small place, what does that do to your mental health over a period of time? You know, right. it's just, it's just yeah. something worth thinking about, I guess. Yeah. And we're, we're definitely going to get into that. Like cool. the kind of your, your South Asian, I guess, experience growing up in, in the South Bay. So yeah. What was your major uh, at Berkeley? Yeah. So I studied public policy and um, my entire goal post-college was to uh, be a lawyer. I wanted to be a civil rights lawyer. And um, I kind of grew up with this idea that like back then, like this, this very like, not a binary idea, but like this idea that like doing good, good in quotes, meant that you, you work in the government and you try to do good for the people around you via the government. And that was my like binary idea, mostly because like, that's what my mother instilled in me. Um, like you must do good through like you want to be a lawyer, like you must do good. Like you have to protect people. You have to like have their back and you have a responsibility to have people's back. Now, as I grew older, I realized that like a government is one method through which you can affect change in, in people's life in a positive way. But oftentimes government is actually working against you in a lot of ways through bureaucracy and antiquated methods to actually like affect change. So um, I think public policy kind of allowed me to explore that path and also allowed me to, allowed me to understand that like that might not be the path long term for me. Okay. as well so interesting and so while you were at berkeley you started a company mm -hmm. with two of your friends yeah wildfire yes. now what was what was that like how did that start yeah and like how did it i, I don't want to say end because i don't think it ever ended but sure. how did it how did you guys transition to and what we're going to talk about an acquisition and whatnot so talk about your experience with that totally man so um my two co-founders, Hriday Kimburu, Jay Patel, and I, we, we started Wildfire um, in um, 2015. And uh, the reason it came about was sometime in 2015, I think it was like October of 2015 or a little bit before that, it might have been, um, 
might have been like August around that time. Uh, my co-founder um, was nearly mugged walking on Berkeley's campus. Uh, two people jumped out of the bushes in the nighttime while he was walking back to his home uh, with like a knife in their hands and, and, and attempted to mug him. And he luckily got away from that situation. But um, he immediately, when he, when he, after that situation happened, he tried to post about it on Facebook and tried to post about it on Twitter and, and everything like that. But what he realized was that unless people were physically on Facebook scrolling through their feeds to actually see what he had posted, they would not have known to avoid the area that he was just from. And they would not have known that like there is a dangerous situation happening here. Like in real time. In real time. Um, instead of like information like that should be coming to you in real time rather than you having to seek it out. So his philosophy was that there needed to be a better, more efficient, more effective way of letting people know about these kinds of like high, high incidents like in, in real time. And uh, that's when he, um, that's when he kind of like um, spoke to me and spoke to Jay and like, and, and tried to get this idea off the ground. Initially, the idea wasn't anything big. The idea was, uh, it was just like a project. It was just a, the three dudes just starting a project with the idea that like, can we help keep people a little bit more safe as they're walking back home and empower them through a little bit more information at the end of the day. Um, and uh, it made sense for me because I, I was in student government throughout college and I also worked for the mayor in college, the mayor of Berkeley. Really? Yeah. And, and during that time, a lot of what I focused on was actually student safety and campus safety. Like um, a lot of the work that I did was um, uh, looking at high crime areas or areas that had statistically more crime throughout the areas of where like, students were living and making sure there were better street lighting put in there. And it, it, there's no like, there's no like hard signs that more lighting equals less crime, but the, the general philosophy was that if there's more lighting there, perhaps people would be deterred from committing crime. And if they, if they are committing crime, the person that is being robbed or the person that is being assaulted would have a better idea of what that perpetrator actually looks like. Right. So just high, better lighting there made people feel more comfortable. So how do we get better lighting in high crime areas uh, around where students live? That was kind of like my goal that I worked on for about three and a half years with both the city and student government as well to kind of enact and get done. So when Hurde reached out to me, it just seemed like, oh, like so many things are kind of aligning and uh, a lot of things could kind of work from there. Okay. So what I'm really curious about also then is, and we'll get into kind of like the growth of the company and whatnot, sure. but I'd say most people who start these kind of companies, because it's, I guess the first question is, would you categorize this as a tech company? Yes. So most people who start a tech company, or at least are the early founders of a tech company, come from a technical, yeah. computer science, whatnot background. Mm -hmm. What was the experience like coming from a public policy background? And I guess what I'm trying to get at is like, how much of it was leveraging what you learned in school and how much of it was just, you just got to learn? Yeah. Um, I, I, it's a couple of answers there, right? Like one, like... Uh, a ton of imposter syndrome, actually, because, uh, and I, that's just me being completely honest for the first, like, two years or so was actually really difficult because both my other co-founders were computer scientists. They were, they were both CS people and I was public policy. And I had a lot of creativity. I had a lot of ideas. But I think when people are looking at a COO, they're looking for someone that has, like, a business degree, a business background, worked in investment banking, McKinsey. And if you don't have that, people kind of dismiss you and... Um, People weren't necessarily judging me on my ideas. They were judging me on my resume at that point. And that right. was uh, kind of immensely hurtful because uh, I was already at this point where I was like, shit, I'm already so deep into this company. I hope, I hope, people, I hope no one else loses faith that I can actually deliver. And we were delivering. 
but it's like you know you don't want to listen to the people of what they're saying on the outside but like yeah. it kind of bleeds in and like you know it affects your confidence to a certain level right yeah so um but i i would actually say that my one of my greatest strengths is um building relationships like i am i take a lot of pride in uh like building relationships with people and i think that the element of building relationships and understanding people ultimately is what makes me um good as a coo as a business individual because i think at the end of the day uh, a good businessman builds a lot of relationships and understands users and understands what users want and understands how to like like discern user needs and by talking to users and by like hypothesizing from there like what what their needs are and so um i was able to do that through just like my understanding of like how to work with people and how to talk to people and i think that is an immensely like underrated thing in my opinion which is just to be good with people at the end of the day you know like sure. i feel like um you can be the greatest coder on the planet but at the end of the day to build a company it 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 takes people to be great with individuals and to understand what you want to build alongside that element as well great and i, I kind of want to dissect that a little yeah. bit more so when you're saying you're talking to users you know they're giving you feedback on what they want what they're looking for mm-hmm. And you gotta, you gotta like bring that to fruition. So you have to communicate that to. I'm assuming you, you were communicating it to the other two co-founders sure. because they're the CS guys. Yeah. Like, how? What is that like? Because I, this is something that I'm actually very, very curious about for someone who's, you know, I, I work in consulting yeah. at the moment. Like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'd like to kind of pivot into a, somewhere where I can work in tech. Where yeah. I think part of my struggles is kind of similar to what you had said, where they're looking for a McKinsey, something yeah. like that. I mean, I'm at EY, which yeah. is. I'm not sure it gets the same repertoire as those other companies do. I don't know. My EY is fantastic. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. But I guess another another layer to that is like if I want to move into like a product role, yeah, I don't have a tech technical background. Mm-hmm. How do I? How do you listen to users and communicate to CS people? Because I think it's very easy to say like, all right, my users want the app to just really learn what I'm thinking. You mm-hmm. know, say something that's kind of along the lines of machine learning and yeah. you just tell your your coders your users your your engineers like hey this is what they want can you guys do this yeah How, what is that like yeah i feel like sometimes we fool ourselves into thinking what our users actually want because that's actually what we want and not what the users actually want and i feel like um and this happens like across everyone like like whether it's an engineer or whether it's a non-engineer like i feel like we we add our own bias into the mix whenever and one of the most painful things that I hear oftentimes when people are starting companies is that like, oh, we don't have customers to talk to. Like, we're not able to A-B test. We're not able to like ascertain what people want. And I think that's like, I don't think that's fair. Like, I think we live in a world right now where like, like in 20 minutes, you can create a landing page, put it up on Facebook, A-B test that, A-B test that stuff and understand like whether, like where users are actually like, is it language A or language B that they like? Is it language C or language D that they like? And then from there, you can literally print out your landing page on a piece of paper on four different pieces of paper. And you can, depending on like what your target audience is. For me, it was college students. For us, it was college students. Mm-hmm. So we would, we would literally print wireframes of what we were building or categories of what we were building. And we would go to different colleges and we would just like talk to a hundred people and we would point and be like, does this intuitively make sense? Like, where this flow goes and what would it be from here? We wouldn't say we were the founders of Wildfire. We would say we are doing user testing on behalf of this company because the thing is, if we said we were the founders, they wouldn't be brutally honest with us. Right. But if I said I was just a person helping them out, they were brutally honest, and that's what we needed. And so we okay. would be able to get hundreds and hundreds of people to talk to us just based on like wireframes. And 
and obviously it's different for a consumer company like me than like a uh, B2B SaaS business. But um, I, I just don't think like, I just don't think we're ever talking to enough users. And I, I just don't think there's ever an excuse not to like uh, do that as much as like people don't, you know? Okay. And is that, is that like normal procedure when you're a consumer facing business where you, when you're going out to get feedback, you're kind of, you don't want to let people know that you are actually founders or employees of the company. You try to kind of make it a little bit more discreet. Everyone has a different way of doing it. I don't think there's like one way to user test. I think like the kind of way that like me, Hrde, and Jay and I user tested was like we found like different talks with different people doing user testing and we kind of like created an amalgamation method. And we also have to play to our strengths, right? Like I'm going to like, like Jay is, um, Jay is a good speaker, but he speaks very slowly and very intentionally. I'm a very fast speaker and I speak with a lot of like unnecessary gusto on a lot of things. So it's like we also have to play to our strengths as well. Um, so like, I, I, I say the method best worked for me is like not to reveal the fact that you're a founder because like, I like, if someone's willing to talk to you for 15 minutes, I want those 15 minutes to be like the best 15 minutes that I can get. And I don't want them to be thinking when they're supposed to be giving me feedback, could I possibly be nicer to these guys? I don't want to hurt their feelings, right. like all that kind of stuff. So it's just like, this is easier, not lie, but like, it's like, don't aren't 100% honest about it, you know? Gotcha. So, okay. So we've kind of, we kind of heard about like day one kind of, yeah. What was, cause wildfire was there for six years, correct? Six years. Yeah. So what was like the growth process? Like, and I, I'm assuming this kind of took you through graduation and doing this full time, like the, the business side, the product side, the growth side. I want to hear all of it. Yeah. So, um, let's see, what do I even start? So, um, so first of all, Wildfire was a was an app where um, we would send out real time alerts uh, when something major happened around you, like anything from uh, a, a crime or a mugging, or uh, and then eventually we also expanded that scope of content to like uh, free food on campus, celebrity sightings on campus, um, like oh, nice. anything and everything you needed to hear about. Instead of you seeking out that information, how does that information come to you? Parties that are happening, professors being arrested, sexual harassment on campus, a professor like being fired for sexual harassment, like anything and everything you need to know about, which the university is definitely not going to let you know about some of those kinds of things. Like um, like a shitty situation that happened at a frat, which like the frat people won't want to talk about, but like people deserve to know that something bad went down at the frat. Like democratizing access to better information that can okay. help you make better decisions for yourself. So um, the whole philosophy was that like we initially started with just crime and safety because crime and safety is something that you can get people in like regardless of your gender regardless of how big you are as an individual like that's something that you care about because you have a friend that you want to walk home like all of us have walked home our friends at late at night at some point or the other so we're all safety conscious individuals right. especially when you live in a college town or, or or a big city so um what we would do is that like um we would start like sending out alerts uh so initial so even though we were a crowdsourced platform we would get our information through a plethora of sources like one source was through our users who would like see something say something kind of mechanism yeah. but the other one was like we built out scrapers on our own end which would scrape like online media news media paid media social media and would just like would allow us to get better information that we can then send out to our users as well but that's already been verified information because that's coming from like news sources and stuff like that. And so like our way of growing initially was to send out notifications to our Berkeley campus. And then we would grow from like 
20 users to 25 users to 30 users. We thought we were sick when we had 30 users. Honestly, like when, <laughs> when we had our first 30 users, we were like, wow, 30 people actually thought we were sick enough and they downloaded our product. Like, how cool is that? Like, yeah. it's actually a really cool feeling, like even though it's 30, but like X number, whatever number that is, they think your product, because in today's world, uh, real estate on your phone is immensely valuable. Right. And if someone is downloading your product because they find value in it, that's a really cool feeling and you need to talk to those users a bunch Definitely. because clearly those 30 people found some value that like the rest of the people did not. And you need to understand like the psychology behind why they decided to use your product uh -huh. and why your product right now, because it's not just about the product. It's about why this moment and why in this particular time they found it useful to download your product. Nice. So, and my thing is, if you can find out what that inflection point, what that moment is, you can then try to replicate that amongst all your future users as well. Okay. So we started growing from there slowly. Like, uh, and what we realized was that every single time we would send out a notification, we were growing by X number of users, like 30 users, 50 users, 90 users, 100 users. And at a point at Berkeley's campus, we grew from around, uh, well, we grew from no users to about 4,000 users over a span of like, uh, like six months or so. And it was a slow six months, but like it took us some time, but we got there over time. So um, in in 2016, end of 2016, we had around 4,000 users and we were figuring out like, what is the inflection point to get us from that 4,000 to like 40,000? Like, what is that breaking point? What is that thing? Um, and then like, I, I can tell you the story really quickly if you want to know like how that like breaking point happened for us um, uh, on that one, if you're interested in that. Yeah, definitely. I think one thing I wanted to ask, so sure. you, this was all... On the you got you got your app onto the app store right now. I've heard that's not the easiest process in the world. Yes. at least compared to getting it onto like the Android sure. stores. So right. like, what was uh, and I'm I'm honestly like kind of thinking about like I don't know if you watched the Uber show on on Showtime. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. They all they get in fights with Eddie Q. Yeah, what was that kind of like? I, I guess like what was the process of getting it onto the app store? Yeah, it was actually like um, I mean. It wasn't as dramatic. I, I mean, I wish there was a good story there, but it really wasn't as dramatic. It, it was just like, um, if I'm not mistaken, like they finished building the app in like six days. Okay. And then uh, we just were like looking at the app store rules and we just understood like, because at that point, they had built a few apps in the past. So we kind of understood the guidelines for the app store. Okay. And for us, it was just about like getting it on at that point. And it wasn't, it wasn't too hard. Okay. Obviously, if Apple rejected it, they would give you reasons as to why they rejected it. Um, there's this setting that's on, or there there's this thing that links to that. You shouldn't do that stuff like that. But like we follow those rules pretty pretty well, and like we were very mindful about those rules going in as well. Okay. So you guys weren't rejected. Yeah, we weren't rejected. And the thing is, like, even if we were rejected, we managed to figure it out within a day why we were rejected. We submit it and then get it back on. So like, okay. it, it wasn't like, uh, it, it wasn't the end of the world anyway. If okay. We were rejected. Okay. Great. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Talk about that that breaking point. Yeah, so that breaking point was uh, sometime in early 2017, I, I believe. It, it's tough. The dates just like all, all meld together after a while. Um, but in 2017, it, it was just a normal school day. Um, and then someone was shot dead near Berkeley's campus. Um, and what was interesting was uh, when, when that happened, somebody posted about it on our product that it happened. And We've had people post on a product a bunch, right? Like we've had people post like, oh, like I saw a suspicious guy on that road or I saw uh, a mugging take place here. And like it was all small stuff or like medium stuff. But like this is the first time where like something so substantive had happened in Berkeley in a long, long time. And the fact that the person that 
saw it, thought about us and posted about it on our platform. The thing is, with more people on your platform or more people seeing these kinds of things that are happening in real time, they could post it on your app. So mm-hmm. we were happy that we had, what, like 4,000 users at that point that we could actually like um, get information from. So um, someone posted on our product, they were like, um, oh my gosh, like there's uh, like, like someone would just shot dead on this side. Like someone just ran away. There's a dead body or like someone that looks kind of dead. Like we just called the cops, like stay away from this area. And it was like a block away from campus or a block and a half away from campus. Sure. Um, so what was interesting at that point is that like, uh, I immediately um, sent it out as a notification to like everyone in that area, but our app broke because we weren't used to that kind of traffic coming into our product in that yeah. moment because Usually when we'd send out a notification, it'd be like, oh, like, um, like, uh, like robbery on this end. And like, yeah, we'd get a lot of open rates. We'll get a lot of people coming in and stuff like that. But when we talk about someone dying on campus instantaneously, we, we had such traffic. And then we had people downloading our app so quickly that it broke our app. It just broke. Everything broke in that second. And okay. for me, that was just like, it, it, it was like a movie because it was like, Everything is going wrong. The app is breaking. There's a killer on the loose. Um, people are worried. People are scared. They don't know where to find their information. We were created for that specific reason, but our app is not online. And both my co-founders are in a movie right now, which means I can't even contact them. They were like, they were only like a few blocks away, but they were in a movie theater watching a Kevin Hart movie or something, and they were completely MIA. So I couldn't even reach them. So I'm out here like trying to uh, like figure out what to do. I'm, I'm, so the best thing I can do in that situation is try to call them a bunch, but then two, gather as much information as I can waiting for them to come back. So I do potentially the worst thing I could possibly do and I run towards the crime scene. Like I, I run towards the crime scene because my thing is, can I verify what's going on? Can I get more information on what's going on? Can I see the body? Can I get a picture? Can I, can I get more information on the situation at hand, which can cut through the disinformation initially eventually once we get the app back online back running so um like five minutes after i got back from the crime scene i'd spoken to the cops i'd like gotten like a couple of pictures i'd like snuck a couple of things i'd gotten back um perda and jay come running in and they go directly to the room and they start like working to get the back the app back up online and stuff like that and it was crazy because there was like so much misinformation going on in that moment and people were posting on Facebook, like we have a free and for sale group, which is like where all the students in Cal usually are. Like in that group, like people were like, like we're so confused, what's happening? Is it safe here? And then some people were like, we, we think there's a second shooter in this area. We think there's a shooter near the, like just panic, complete panic. Sure. And journalists are saying one thing, cops are saying one thing else. It's just like, it's actually, it was, um, it was something straight out of a movie. It was just complete chaos. Mm-hmm. So we got the app back online, got the app running. Um, and people were kind of like putting pressure on us, like the journalists that we had spoken to and the cops that we'd spoken to, they were putting pressure on us to be like, you need to send out like these kinds of notifications. You need to send out this notification. You need to send out like that. And for us, we were like, no, we're not like, that's not what we're going to do. Like, we're not there to satiate students' feelings. We're there to get the facts and report on the facts or as close to the facts as we can. And for us, we believed, um, when we kind of created this product, we thought about like, what are the journalism practices that we want to follow? Because it doesn't matter whether we see ourselves as a product that's a journalism-esque product or a news-esque product. That is what they, our users, see in us quite often. Yeah. So for us, it was like, um, we needed two verified sources to be giving us information on something so we could be sending out those kinds of notifications. And uh, 
once we got that, we sent it out. And um, at that point, like a lot of people were resharing our posts and we were actually growing quite a bit. And we grew from something like 4,000 to 36,000 users um, in overnight in one shot. Just Jesus. a graph that just like went up. Um, and, and that was like a magical day for us because that was just like, that proved product market fit for us. In that moment, in that stage, we proved product market fit. They proved product market fit that whether there's a shooting or whether there's a mugging, there are sources of information that are not going to be doing well for you. And you have historically, students have historically stuck to um, like Facebook or Twitter to spread information, which is not good. And our platform is what worked and what works best in these situations to cut through the noise and give you the information that you need in these kinds of situations in real time. So we were just very happy that like, this was not a waste. We were finding product market fit. We were growing immensely. And um, it, it was just a beautiful experience that night. Yeah. I mean, that's my heart's kind of like racing. Listen <laughs> to that story. No, that's, that, that's insane. Yeah. Um, so kind of a- after this, like, did you feel like you had, because the app did crash, did you feel like you at any point, I know you're saying it was a breaking point in an upward trajectory, mm-hmm. but that being said, was there any backlash that you felt from your, I guess, your first initial consumer, like customers? No, the reason I don't think I, I, th- I don't think we did was because um, it, it, it wasn't something we were, one, I think people are a lot forgiving, mostly just because we ended up working and we ended up striving to give them an A-star experience. And we, cr- at the end goal, we crushed it at the end of the day. Right. So that's what they remember more than like the initial 30 minutes of not knowing what's going on. They remembered it at the end of the day, okay. uh, the, the end. But also like, I I feel like consumers are very forgiving if, um, if, if it's something that's out of like your control. Like we didn't expect to go so viral. We didn't expect to do so well, which is why like we grew so much or like we, we kind of crashed. And like, I think users also understand that because like we went from not a lot of people knowing us to like kind of a household name on campus overnight. And I think that's like also kind of a difficult thing to deal with as well definitely you know? yeah yeah so so it was you three at first yes you know so in the six year span what was the growth like yeah so um are you talking about the growth in terms of uh like employees or yeah. in, in general so i guess that yeah that i guess that's like my first kind of thought like yeah. how, how many employees did you guys go to grow through we uh we had like four employees uh in addition like outside of just me her and jay we had four okay. additional employees they were dope. They were awesome. Yeah. We had uh, a couple of engineers, a designer, a growth person, a community person. It was really good. It was really great. We recruited really hard and we recruited like good talent mm-hmm. and we were able to do that. And we were not just lucky, but like we earned that, but like we were able to do that because we raised great money from great people after going through YC and that pedigree and that status, status in quotes, whatever you want to call it, it earned us the right to be um, very like, high like we having a high bar on the kind of talent selective. that we wanted very selective yeah and the kind of talent that we wanted ultimately and i think um that was really great because we we didn't want people we wanted generalists at the end of the day right and i think that's like the first 10 employees that you get in your company make or break the entire experience not just for you as a company but also for the future as well sure when we hired an engineer we would want to we strived like not just to hire an engineer but to hire like a product engineer when we wanted to get a designer, it wasn't just a designer that can just like pixel push. It was like a, a product designer. Like, and similar, like 
I'm, I'm not just an operations guy, I'm a product operations guy. Like it's all about thinking in scope of the product at the end of the day. So our interview questions, regardless of the kind of role, was very product-based questions. We would ask questions like, um, design an alarm clock for a four-year-old. Um, and we would just ask that question and we would see how your mind worked when you were designing a product like that. Or we'd ask like low-key consulting-based questions like how many people travel through the Atlanta airport every single year. And we weren't, we weren't asking those questions to be like mean. And we didn't care about the answer as much. We cared about the journey that you took to get to that answer. We cared about like, how did you break that answer down? How did you like, um, how, how did you get from A to B to C to D? And I think that's what showed us your capability and your breaking things down and your intelligence and everything like that. And I think like that's how we went about trying to recruit. Um, obviously, like through our networks and stuff like that as well. We had okay. a lot of help through our networks. So, what was your fundraising like? Fundraising was uh, fundraising was fun and it was hard and it was um, it was a uh, it was a real journey. It was kind of like I feel like every phase of wildfire, there's like one like like one crazy adventure, one crazy journey. And for us, that was like in YC. So we applied to YC four times. We got rejected from YC three times. We got in on our fourth time. And that fourth time was also going to be our last time applying because we knew for ourselves that we didn't need YC to succeed. You don't. And I, I like just putting this out there to anyone that wants to start a company, uh, to any of your listeners, people who think that YC is mandatory for success or any YC founders that tell you that YC is mandatory for success are completely wrong. Like I, I, I cannot state that enough. Like YC is a means to an end. Mm-hmm. YC is a method of getting somewhere. It is fantastic for um, learning, gaining resources, etc. But like, there are many ways to get that, and you don't need YC. To net. Like, like, you shouldn't believe that if you don't get into YC, you can't run a great company, nor can you be a good founder. I, I think YC can always help you become better, as it did for us. Sure. But like, I don't think YC is like an end all, be all, and people just need to like understand that. And I met, I've met some YC founders that are very like. YC is everything, and I'm like, yeah, maybe <laughs> chill out. That's not the impression that I think anyone wants to, anyone should give yeah. about like YC. Um, so we got into YC on our fourth time, and that was amazing. We had such a good time. It was one of the hardest three months that we've ever worked. And uh, um, now nowadays, it's like it's so cool because like when we when we got into YC, we were given one hundred twenty five thousand um, dollars okay. for seven percent of our company. But now companies get five hundred thousand dollars for seven percent of their company, and I'm like, damn, like. Companies these days got a very good deal for that um, for that seven percent. They got a lot more money for that seven percent. One hundred twenty five was uh, not very much. Um, this was back in twenty seventeen, so it wasn't that long ago as well. You know. Okay, so this is this is after you graduated. This is after we graduated. Yeah, and that that was was wildfire generating revenue at this point. No, no. So um, fun fact for anyone: uh, wildfire never generated any revenue yeah. throughout the entire time we ran our product. However. Um, I am not here to say that revenue doesn't matter. I am here to say that for different products, when you gather revenue, matters at different times. Sure. And for our product, we focused on different metrics and different things that we wanted to hit more than that of revenue because we, and I'll get to that eventually as well, but we just felt that there were metrics that we should focus on that would yield us um, better revenue down the line than if we focused on revenue at that time that we were trying to do things at. Okay. So um, YC was um, a phenomenal experience. Uh, three months of probably the hardest I've ever worked. Like I think even now, like I, I haven't worked as hard as like the three months of YC. It was, it was also funny because like we had what's known as um, group office hours where like your group partner 
uh, my group partner was uh, Dalton Caldwell, who's who's the managing director of YC right now. Um, this is within like your contract with YC. Yeah, within within YC. So, okay. um, pretty much like every week, YC would have these group office hours where it was mandatory for you to attend, mm-hmm. and it would be you plus a bunch of other companies that are in your cohort, and um, you would all sit in a circle, and then Dalton would go one company by one company and ask them like. Like, what have you shipped? What are you working on? And like, what are your goals for the week? And you'd have to go around answering them. And if you didn't have a good answer, um, you were kind of embarrassed in front of everyone. Um, and like, and like, not in like a mean way necessarily, but like um, in like a dry, sarcastic, like, like, that's all you did this week. Like you had an entire week and that's all you did. Yeah. And it's kind of humiliating. That's when, like the worst thing to be yeah. when, when a boss says that to you. Yeah, and it's it's quite humiliating when you're in front of like other people as well that you like respect and they respect you, yeah. and you just get wrecked um, yeah. like emotionally by uh, by these individuals. But like that's the thing, there was no greater motivation than getting wrecked and then like being like, I will not get wrecked next week. I will absolutely make progress no matter what. Um, so me, Hrde, and Jay got wrecked a couple of times. It was yeah. fantastic. <laughs> it, it, I think getting wrecked is a part of the process. You you for need sure. to get wrecked, right? Yeah. Um, for example, like Dalton, Dalton was like, uh, I remember one situation. Dalton was like, "Wow, like you guys talked to like like fifteen users. That's amazing. Congrats!" And like we were like, "Oh, you're you're being sarcastic." He's like, he's like, "You guys have thousands of users, and you're talking to fifteen users. Like, go talk to more users. Like, like you have so many more people that you can be getting insights from on like what you're trying to build. Like, like like the only things you should be doing is like build like." Writing code and talking to users, writing code and talking to users. So sure. um, it's a fun experience. We did demo day at the end of YC, which was, I believe, in like July of uh, 2017, I think. July, no, it was August. Actually, demo day was on my birthday in, in August, August 20th, uh, 2017, um, which was fun. You know, like that, that was nice having being really stressed on my birthday is always a fun thing that everyone wants to have. Because <laughs> um, cause we have to raise money. The day after that is when you raise money, right? Yeah. So there's demo day, and the day after that is match day, where the people that like you based on your demo day pitch um, will, like, reach out to you, and the very next day you sit with each of them, like, and then you negotiate terms and stuff like that. So um, we ended up raising something around, like, $3.5 million um, okay. at that point, which was uh, kind of a kind of a, a good, good amount of money to raise in 2017. And... Obviously, right now, like valuations are crazy. Uh, like the amount, of, the amount of money that people are raising are kind of intense. Yeah. But I think our philosophy was like, um, always raise more money than you need, but don't raise so much money at such a valuation that you can't like beat that valuation the next round whenever you need to come back. Yeah. You at the end of the day, like, you can't like sure, like it looks sick if you're raising at a hundred million dollar valuation, but like that means you need to make enough progress that you're raising at more than a hundred million dollar valuation for your next round, and that is hard. Yeah. Who the hell wants to be in that position if you have three employees and you're just growing at that point, right? Yeah. So, and I'm just using 100 million as an as an example, right? So, um, we raised money from some kick-ass people, and I'm so proud of the kind of uh, cap table that we had. Um, we raised from um, Excel, Kosla, uh, Greylock, Redpoint. Um, uh, we raised from Steve Jang, who was one of the first angels in Uber. Mm-hmm. And then we also, uh, raised from Paul Bukite, who, uh, was the founder of Gmail. So raised from some pretty kick-ass people. Um, one of the people that we raised from was actually Keith Raboy, who was at Kosla. Um, uh, yeah, who was at Kosla at that point. Keith is very famous on Twitter for his very hot takes. <laughs> um, uh, and, uh, uh, Keith, Keith, 
Keith is a very, very smart guy, and I, I immensely respected the fact that we got him on our cap table and we got to work with him every every so often. And and our lead investor was a man named Amit Kumar at Excel. And um, Excel has a history of Excel invested in Facebook's A round. Um, Excel yeah. was the lead in Facebook's A. So getting folks like that that understand social consumer in our round to be able to like help us and help us grow was actually a very huge deal for us. And um, for us, it was a big thing about like, how are we not just getting um, big name people, but people that actually work with us and work well with us. So it's like a balancing act between those two things. But we were kind of lucky that like the people that we wanted to work with are the people that were also like slightly like big name individuals as well. So it just kind of came together, you know? Right. So you raised three and a half million. Yeah. So you've got three and a half million sitting in the bank. Right. Is it your job? Was it your job as... Or did you have a CFO? Is that kind of under your thing as COO? Was that your kind of realm of responsibility? So the, what's interesting is that like, and what I really appreciated was that like, we all, me, her, then Jay, we all had our individual responsibilities, but we never made unilateral company decisions. Like right. we always felt that when it comes to matters of money, yeah, sure. Like I ran point on some things where they ran point on some things, but we would always have discussions when we'd always be like, Hey, like, like, I know we discussed this, but like, these are my thoughts. What do you guys think? And we, um, we believed in something called over-communication. Uh, we believed in what's known as even stupid communication, where we would just like over-communicate about stuff to do with like money, about burn, about stuff like that, because we wanted all of us to feel like we had an equal say in everything that was going forward. And I right. think we also lived together as well, by the way. So we worked together, we lived together. So, okay. and I think the only reason all this worked is because we had an immense amount of respect for each other an amount of respect for like intelligence and like kindness and like all these things, which allowed us to kind of like um, not beat around the bush and just be honest about our thoughts and stuff like that. And I think that's all, I mean, it's been seven years since I've been working with them now at Open Door as well. And okay. I think the reason we're able to get along so well is because like we have such a history of like working kind of and, and understanding like what we should do and what we shouldn't do around, around each other and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it was kind of a mutualistic kind of like, um, yeah, but hey, you're gonna run on you're gonna run point on these kinds of do, things to do with finance, but I'm gonna run point on these kinds of things to do with finance, and we sure. kind of split up responsibilities here and there and stuff like that. Since we didn't have a CFO and we didn't really need one as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm just kind of curious then, like what a day, what was the average? And, I'm, and I know there probably was no average because it yeah. was such a dynamic job. But like, what was your day to day as a COO of this? I think at this point you saw you was like what seven people? Uh yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I think more than anyone else at the company, my job was uh, kind of crazy where like no day was ever the same for me because, um, the dream. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Right. Um, but my, my job was pretty much a, a, a kind of a mixture of everything. It was one, um, making sure our metrics are going up into the right consistently and consistently, both from a daily perspective and a weekly perspective and a monthly perspective are, are our metrics going up. And if they're not going up, why aren't they going up? So investigating metric-related issues, making sure metrics are going up week over week over week, or at least like edging up. And then also content. At the end of the day, we are a content platform. We are a content play. Without our content, we have nothing. Without our content, there is no daily actives, weekly actives, monthly actives. There is no product without content at the end of the day. Right. The content that's like the content that's in the app, the content that's being pushed out. And the content was also my purview as well. Making sure... Um, at the end of the day, if we realize that like our baseline was getting to 60% weekly active users for XYZ campus, our job is to make sure we are 
sending out the right amount of alerts for each campus to make sure we're getting there or the right amount of like, or pulling back on the number of alerts to get us there. But like, you don't know that unless you know each campus. So my job was launching a campus, understanding campus, understanding the health of a campus, um, like anything to do with metrics going up into the right. And, at the, and then most importantly, like making sure to understand how content correlated to growth as well. Because at the end of the day, we also realized that like content was the growth play as well. So how does content correlate to growth? So I think I touched a little bit of everything through content, but it was more like product operations where like um, I touched a little bit of legal. I touched a little bit of moderation. I touched a little bit of this. So it was a little bit of an eclectic mix every day. But I think the, the more we got involved, the more I started to realize that like um, a lot of the job also re revolved around moderation. And that's where it gets really tough because when you're at like six colleges with like 10,000 users, that's not that bad. But when you're at 280 colleges with a million and a half users and you're getting 70,000 posts a day on your platform, then that's where you run into child pornography. That's right. when you run into misinformation. That's when you run into fake news. And that's something that like we had to take on ourselves as well, which is how do you moderate content but not play God? How do you moderate content but do so in a scalable way? And those are immensely difficult challenges. And yeah. we were like, Facebook is still trying to figure this out. Twitter is figuring this out. Reddit is still figuring this out. And we were able to like, figure, we, we were actually able to do a really good job of figuring this out through uh, a mixture of um, mod, like mixture of like, like uh, manual and automated mechanisms and stuff like okay. that. So we were able to figure a lot of that stuff out. And lastly, like a lot of what I did was like on call stuff as well. Like, um, the, the, the worst thing that we could do was send out fake information, right? right. Worst thing that you could do. So uh, if there's ever a situation where um, we had to send out a notification about like uh, a shooting that's happening in an area or something like that, like um, I need to make sure that like, we need to make sure that like things are valid, things are like, things are actually moving in the right direction. We're not sending out disinformation constantly and stuff like that. So it, it was kind of an amalgamation of all those kinds of things was kind of my role on a daily basis. Okay. Now, let me ask you this. Were you guys before or who came first? You guys or Citizen after? We came first and Citizen was after us. Not by a long shot, but Citizen was a little bit after us. And um, I, I, I had no issues with Citizen. Like Citizen yeah. was, a, was a fine app and, and I, I appreciate Citizen, what they were trying to do. Citizen was most based on like um, cities, post-college sure. oftentimes. And we yeah, were more no. based on like college and like the stuff to do with college. For Citizen... Uh, users couldn't submit content, but in um, the users could like submit like uh, like very like small things, but it was mostly police scanner stuff. But for us, we okay. were able to submit content. But um, and I, I it was a hot take maybe, but like I think the more citizens started to grow, the more they um, really really dove deep into fear mongering, um, and that is something that I'm deeply not a fan of. And don't get me wrong, like there is there is a there is an element of truth even sure. to what they're saying but i think there is a there is a way of doing that without making people feel like there's an immediate threat to their lives which means they need to download this app right now i just think there are ethical ways of going about like informing people and getting them to download your product versus yeah. fear-mongering them to downloading your product and that's just something that i don't vibe with yeah I, i'd have to agree like so I, I mean i i used to have the app on my phone and um it it was always just, I felt like just such poor delivery of news, I think, or like the information, like 
it, it was tough to sometimes just kind of be like, you know, at the time when we were all working, working from home mm-hmm. in 2020 to like stabbing 15 feet away. Yeah. It's like, you look out your window and you actually don't see it like, yeah. because it's not like, it's all just radial. So, yeah. And it was just like, I think everyone kind of acknowledged like, okay, I live in a city. Yeah. You know, I live in Soma. There's probably stuff going around around me. Right. I don't need to be, this is my take on it was that I don't need to know it all. Right. And part of that might be like you being like, somebody once said like, okay, well then you're just being naive or you're hiding from the truth. And it's like, I don't think that's necessarily it. It's just like, I don't need to be constantly be reminded about the crime that's going on in the world. Yeah. Like, if it actually poses a, a threat to me, yeah. which maybe it would have because it was 15 feet away. Sure. But like, you know, you don't need to, it doesn't need to be constantly in your face. So like, yeah. I can definitely like appreciate that. Answer. Yeah. And in fact, that's one of the main reasons why we shifted away from just crime and safety and into other categories as well. We expanded the scope of wildfire content because our users consistently told us that they felt that they would rather not be in the know than be in the know, but be so overwhelmed all the time with what was happening around them. And that was a huge wake-up call for us to understand that, like, we can use the same mechanism to deliver positive news as well. So it feel so when you do get negative news, it doesn't feel like that's the only kind of news that you're getting. Yeah. Um, also, I will say, like, I don't know if you know this, but like before Citizen was Citizen, they were called a different product. They were called Vigilante. Um, that's worse. Yeah. It's awful. Name. Vigilante was actually In banned on the yeah. App Store um, because okay. what Vigilante would do was that they would report, like, they'd be like, oh, like. Um, People were allowed to report like suspicious things happening. And then the whole point of the app Vigilante was that people could intervene and people could see like what was going on and like people could intervene. And like one of the worst things that happened, one of the worst things that happened was like someone was like, oh, sus- like suspected man doing suspicious things in this area. And like uh, a bunch of vigilantes like, uh, like, assault- like assaulted a, a Muslim man just because he looked suspicious and for no reason at all and like yeah. obviously i know that's not the intention of i know that's not the intention that like the vigilante founders like set out to do right but like we also have to understand that like human beings aren't innately like uh like like thinking about things from like uh like oh like yeah it, it's 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 a recipe for disaster exactly and i i just felt like citizen is obviously a better concept than vigilante but still preys upon the based instinct of like fear mongering in my opinion and sure. nothing against them like i hope i i i, I hope I hope they are net positive still. I, I want to believe that they are, but uh, I do hope they like, like over time, like yeah. realize that like, since they're the only ones in this field, they don't need to fear among people into downloading their product. Like people will download them because they're providing something of value. Sure. You know? Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, this definitely to all our listeners, definitely not a knock on citizen. No, 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 yeah, exactly. Yeah. Definitely not a knock on <laughs> citizen. Um, but also like, I, 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 I'm someone that believes that like, you can do both. You can inform people in a positive, you can inform people in a way they need to be informed without making them feel like it's the end of the world if they don't download the product. And I think that is a product decision at the end of the day. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Now, that, there, there have been times where the app actually has been very beneficial to me. Sure. I mean, when I was living, this was over right, like a block behind Salesforce Tower mm-hmm. in Rinkin Hill, whatever you want to call that neighborhood. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was in a new building, 500 Folsom, and then I was on the third floor and we're looking out the window. There's like, and by the way, like, there was just always something going on, like on the alley across yeah. the way. It could be anywhere from a photo shoot with a model yeah. to like, it looked like there was like a guy, like a, a escaped convict was out there once. Wow. It was always strange stuff. But like one day at night, there's like 10 cop cars out there and 
there's just no information about like what's going on. And then I get like once they all go away and like we, I go downstairs, I ask the guy, I was like, yo, what happened? He's just like, oh, dude, download Citizen app. He's like, you can't just tell me. <laughs> like, what yeah, do you mean? Yeah, He's yeah. Like, and then, yeah, you download the app and there's just like tons of reports of, of what's going on and what happened. And yeah. Somebody walked in the building with a machete. Oh, so wow. That was some interesting stuff. Yeah, seriously. But um, yeah, no, it's. I think I think I definitely I can definitely see the difference between what your product provided and what Citizen provided. There totally, too. yeah. So, and I think one thing that you alluded to earlier was that, you know, you you want to basically make sure there's just like a free flowing of information out there, and so I can definitely appreciate that because I went to school in Stockton mm -hmm. at University of the Pacific, and mm -hmm. I never had you know, you know, I never had anything bad happen to me when I was there. Thankfully, I. I, I'd like to think I was pretty smart about mm -hmm. some of the decisions I made, but you know, there was a bridge that would kind of exit the main campus and it would go to like some where the pharmacy school was. Mm -hmm. And then there's some more like, like dorms and stuff there. So that bridge was just notorious for mm. at night, a lot of stuff happening. Yeah. And that the school, you would only really hear about like the worst of the worst, mm. but like people would get pistol whipped. There was wow. tons of like, and it was over the Calaveras River. Okay. It's a lot of like homeless encampments underneath and stuff. Sure. So a lot of crime happened on that bridge that you wouldn't hear from the school. Right. And for a while, because I had transferred in. So like I, I would just kind of rely on everything I heard from the school. But it wasn't until I started to talk to people, they were like, oh yeah, my, my roommate got pistol whipped yesterday. Yeah. You know, I literally got approached as I was walking. Like, you know, I, I ran away really quickly. And yeah. like, you just hear like, all these things. So it's kind of cool that you provided a platform specifically for, for colleges because I, whether right or wrong, I see why a school like, you know, I'll use Pacific doesn't want to broadcast out that oh, totally probably every day this week, some element of crime or some aspect of crime has occurred. Yeah. You know, that it's a business. Yeah. They, same with, they, same, same with Berkeley, which is a notoriously not very safe place as well. Yeah. Like, so you can't broadcast those things out. Yeah. But, people do have the right and need to know those things. Yeah, I, I felt that way specifically about like when um, there was an incident at one of the schools where like a professor was um, put on leave for like groping a student, right? And um, it, it wasn't published by the news. It wasn't from the students. We found it from like this like one obscure tweet and we able to double confirm, like double confirm it. And we sent out the notification and like people were commenting underneath the post and they were like, oh my God, like this is, this is my professor last semester. Like this is my professor the year before. Like it's like, it, it fills you with disgust, but it's like, and it sucks. It's really shitty information, but it's like also like you deserve to know that information because if the professor ever comes back and they ever bury it, like you deserve to know that like, you don't want to take a class with that professor. Like you deserve to make that decision for yourself, you know? Yeah. So um, it's, it's just, it's just stuff like that. Yeah, for sure. So wildfire was started Yeah. six years later. Yeah. What happened? So, so um, during so the pandemic happened actually. So um, makes sense. Yeah. 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 So the <laughs> pandemic happened, and um, we realized that like people were inside all the time, and so people weren't going out to party, free food, like not like, even crime was kind of going down in a lot of our campuses, which is great. Like we had no issues with that, but it also meant like we needed to find a way to um, once again expand the scope of like the kind of content that we were sending out. So we were trying a bunch of new things. Like one of the things that we tried was like we built. Um, we kind of built a clubhouse-esque product within our own product uh, called Wildfire Audio Rooms. And like, because people were stuck inside, let them, let them talk about. Um, and the thing is, what's interesting about Clubhouse was that like Clubhouse was like your real identity was known in Clubhouse. But for Wildfire, 
it was pseudo anonymous. Like, yeah. like we knew your identity on the back end, so we could block anyone. But in front, like you could you could put your real identity, or you could put like whatever fake identity you wanted as well. And these audio rooms were really interesting because people were becoming friends with people on their campus, knowing nothing but just like, oh, this is a cool audio room on um, best places to take a shit on campus. <laughs> and honestly, like uh, if that's something that students care about, fabulous, man. Like knock yourself out. But like that's like what like that's what like students were kind of getting together and talking about and creating audio rooms for. So that's one thing. Uh, like other thing was like, well, what are some of the like. Um, um, Oh, another thing we were kind of creating was that, like, we were sending out notifications to, to students on, like, um, which shops around them had food, like the toilet paper that they needed, which places were sold out and stuff like that. So okay. we were trying to send more utilitarian-based notifications as well so we could be useful in, in the times of the pandemic as well. So uh, around that time is when, um, like, Open Door approached us. And the reason Open Door approached us was uh, Keith Raboy, uh, one of our investors, was the co-founder of Open Door, <clears throat> and another one of our investors, his name is Evan Moore. Evan was the founder of DoorDash. After Evan left DoorDash, he went to Open Door and became Open Door's head of product. Um, Evan was also one of our investors as well. Um, and uh, they 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 were like, hey, like Eric Wu from Open Door, the head of Open Door, like the CEO of Open Door, like wants to just like talk to you guys about like product stuff and just like wants to pick your brain. And uh, her, they went into that meeting and, and what was supposed to be like a 30 to 40 minute meeting turned into like a four to five hour meeting. Uh, it was just like a very long, very productive, very fruitful meeting. And um, that's kind of when like a lot of conversations started happening of like, what could we do to work together? And like, how could we work together a little bit more <clears throat> and all that stuff. And, um, <clears throat> and um, at that point, like um, we thought to ourselves, we were like, okay, like if, if, if someone is interested in acquiring us, um, that's fine, but we don't want to start an acquisition process and run our company at the same time. Cause like you are acquisition process is running a full-time thing and, um, running a company is a full-time thing. You can't focus on both. So our philosophy was how could we pick one or the other? So we realized that like, we would only go for an acquisition is if a couple of things happened for us. Um, like one if they would allow me, Hrde and Jay to work together still, like wherever we would join. Two, um, if um, if we were like able to work on something that was actually substantive, like a zero to one problem, like an actual substantive issue that we can work on. Um, and three, like obviously, like uh, like is is the compensation and the monetary compensation good for the amount of like technology and the people that you're getting out of this entire deal? Sure. So, but that was lower on the scale for us at the end of the day, as opposed to like working together and continue working together and stuff like that. Okay. So, um, once we started the acquisition process, we, um, we spoke to a lot of like pretty big companies. Um, um, like definitely companies that like a lot of people have heard of and like that are, that are pretty big and stuff like that. Um, but the reason, uh, we just, but the thing is like when we were talking to them, they would give us something that we wanted, but not the other thing that we wanted. They would give us like the third thing that we wanted, but not the second that we wanted. And um, Open Door kind of uh, set a deal for us, a phenomenal deal for us, where um, they wanted us to work on a zero to one bet for them, a, a huge problem for them, and we would be the kind of the starting GMs for that kind of thing. Two, um, they would allow, they wanted us to work. They in fact encouraged us to work together, be on the same team, and work together every single day. Um, Three, we were reporting high up into the structure to Eric Wu, the CEO itself. Um, 
and uh, and four, the compensation was good. Uh, they were giving us good money for what they were acquiring. Um, and and most important, and also one more important thing for us was that like we were going into a sphere where we didn't really understand it very much. Real estate is a completely different beast than that of social consumer, which we were running. But the way Eric really spoke to us and convinced us along with, um, along with uh, one of his lieutenants, Marav, who was um, uh, a VP, um, who is a VP, um, was that um, the way, the, the way we phrased this is that like human beings, like, Try, like, first of all, like we've built a zero to one product, so we understand how to build zero to one and go zero to one. But two, talking to users, understanding what we're doing and understanding how to build product for users is fundamentally the same, whether you're building for consumer or whether you're building for real estate. Also, Open Door is a real estate consumer product at the end of the day. It's yeah. just a different kind of people that you're targeting at the end of the day. So, uh, and a different product. But he really was like, you can utilize the skills that you've built for Wildfire to come and build something that can be useful for a lot of people in a utilitarian way. But also like uh, you can learn a lot about something very, very new. And uh, for a big selling point for us was that like um, real estate is where so many people are putting in so much money. Like for California, maybe it's a different ball game altogether, but in a lot of the world, like when people are buying homes, they are putting their entire life savings into that home in a lot of ways, a significant amount of their savings into that home. Um, like, how do we make that process better for people and why is it so broken as it is right now? Let's use the zero to one insights, the consumer insights that you get to build a better product for these people. So um, we thought that that was a worthwhile endeavor to kind of like get into. And so in June, 2021, um, we, uh, said yes to open door and we started literally one month later. We literally like, but we, so we finished the paperwork, we sent everything in, we shut everything down. And then within like two weeks, we were at open door. Okay. We didn't really get a break, which I, which I wish I'd gotten a little bit of a break. If I'm being honest, I kind of felt like a, a little burnt out initially, but you know, that's yeah. life. Well, before, before we get into like multitude of things, yeah. So when you said open door approached you first, mm. but then you had said that, and we're not we're not going to discuss it to who, but like you did that when open door approached you and they said like we're interested in acquiring you or whatever that conversation led to. Did you guys did you three discuss internally and be like okay now we're just kind of open this up to whoever is interested in acquiring us? Like at that point, the decision was we are going to be acquired. Uh, so. Yes and no. So, so initially, Open Door came to us and they were like, "Yeah, like we're we're open to this acquisition," and then we had to make a decision for ourselves between the three of us as to whether we wanted to be acquired in the first place. Because we had cash in the bank, we could keep going. We our burn was stellar. We could keep doing this for another like one and a half years. But for us, it was the decision as to yes or no to acquisition, and a yes or no would then start the process with Open Door plus everyone else at the same time as well. Because running an acquisition process is really, really difficult. Because at the end of the day, like, let, let's just—I'll I'll just give you a hypothetical. Let's just say I'm talking to Open Door, I'm talking to Nextdoor, and I'm talking to uh, Google. All right, um, and all three of those places, uh, we start talking to them like two weeks apart from each other or a week apart from each other. Open Door gives me an offer, and they're like, "We're going to acquire you for ten million dollars, but you have to let me know in two days whether you're taking that offer or not, and you can't delay it." Um, but suppose I, suppose Opendoor gave me that offer and it, I, it's only valid for two or three days, three days max. 
but we just started talking to Google a couple of days ago. Um, we're not at the point where Google's going to give us an offer yet. So we, we're in a pressured situation where like we might have to turn down possible offers because we have this money on the table and we don't know whether Google's going to match that 10 million or do higher than that or not. So right. the point of running an acquisition process that like you have to keep everyone the same level of warm for a long period of time so that they all give you offers around the, the same, same time. time. Okay. So, but that's incredibly difficult because everyone is like running their own process on their own end. But once again, that's a really good problem to have because you are lucky if one person wants to acquire you. You are in a phenomenal position if two people want to acquire you. You are in an unbeatable position if three or more people want to acquire you. Like they're willing to put the money where their mouth is. That's really, really rare. It's yeah. definitely rare. We, we were very lucky that we had multiple people that were willing to engage with us and talk to us and get to that end level as well. But we went with Open Door because um, we felt that like they were willing to put their money where their mouth was. And I'm telling you, a year in, everything that they have promised, they have delivered and more. And like this might be like one of the smoothest like acquisitions that, based on all my friends that have been acquired and stuff like that, like their experiences have not been as clean as ours. So uh, definitely very like thrilled with like what's mm-hmm. what's gone down, you know, okay. with these folks. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's really good insight. I feel like a lot of people probably don't, don't think that way. Mm-hmm. So, so now that you are there, like, how, how, so what, I guess, what is your current role now at, uh, at Open Door? Yeah, I kind of, um, so I, I, I lead product operations okay. for this new division that we're working on. Uh, it's called Open Door Exclusives. And the whole point of Open Door Exclusives is that, um, uh, well, it, it's multiple things, but like the biggest thing is that Historically and for the longest time, people have felt that they need to buy a home with an agent. Like an agent is the way to go about trying to buy a home because an agent is the one with all the insights, with all the blah, blah, blah. But you will actually know over time and in reality that like there are some really, really good agents and most of them are actually just very okay. (laughs) They're all just very okay. And, And then there's some that are just dog shit. And there's some that are just terrible. Yeah. And... The whole point of Open Door Exclusives is that what if we created a product that was such a pleasurable and downright phenomenal experience from end to end product-wise that you yourself realize that you don't need an agent to do this? What if the price that we gave you was the absolute best price? What if we offered you perks like appraisal price match guarantee where like if the home appraises at a lower price, we will sell it to you at the lower price. What if we gave you such great perks that you realize that you don't need to pay your agent out of pocket for anything, that you can just work with us end to end and we can get it done. And our philosophy is that like, if you want to use an agent, you can use an agent, but you are now responsible for paying that agent instead of open door at the end of the day. But it's all about choice. Yeah. It's all about presenting you, the buyer, with choice. And the choice is you can use our product, which has been built for a self-service experience, or you can use an agent, and that's on you. Right. But the whole, the whole philosophy was a long time ago, we used to book flights and hotels through travel agents. A long time ago, we're talking back, back, back in the day, we would use agents to buy groceries, actually. We would tell people what we wanted for groceries, and people would pick out those groceries, put it in the bag, and you would go get them long time ago. It was like quite, kind of quasi-Instacart way back in the day. Uh-huh. But somehow, we are still living in a world where there is not a phenomenal experience for buying a home, 
without that of someone that's to help you there every step of the way to actually do it. Right. And I think the product needs to evolve and the world needs to evolve with that product as well so that we are offering a 12-star experience so people can... If this is going to be the home that you're going to be spending a huge part of your life in and you're putting in half your life savings in, why the hell isn't there a better designed product to help you like buy that home and make that home into the best possible experience it can be right. and save you money in that process at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, Cause I think there's a lot of values that you can, that we can give you, but at the end of the day, like saving money for the buyer or saving money for, for people is the greatest value proposition that we can offer you at the end of the day. Yeah. So that was, um, that was the, that, that was the, that's the division and what we do in the division. We're, we're creating this self-service platform through which people can buy Homes at a much discounted rate at a better price without the need of agents, without the necessity of agents. We will walk you through and we will help you through the process from A to B to C to Z using our product and using product intelligence rather than necessarily people. Okay. Um, and and we've, sold, uh, we've sold a lot of homes. We're, we're in three markets right now. We've, uh, we've sold, we, we've sold uh, close to $100 million worth of homes. So we're doing pretty well and we're just like kind of expanding and stuff like that right now. Kind of my role within this team is um, I'm, I lead up the uh, kind of the, the middle ground between product and operations. So real estate is one of the most compliance heavy industries on the planet. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the work that I do, I have to work with legal brokerage policy um, and product to kind of make sure all teams are on the same page when we're launching new products and we're getting things to the finish line. Sure. Um, how does that relate to our customer service? How does that relate to a uh, new launch schedule? How does that relate to product and all that kind of stuff? And then it's my job in many ways to take the ideas that product has and find a way to implement it, which is a pain in the ass sometimes um, because it's, it's actually funny because like my product brethren don't always need to understand how operations works, but operations people always need to understand how product works and operations work. Um, so, okay. because it's, it's just one of those things. And I think what's very interesting about Open Door um, is that like we're an online offline company where like things that the actions that you take online uh, affect inventory and affect <laughs> things that are offline. So I just feel like there's a lot of beautiful ops complications and things to learn in that sphere as well. And I've, I've had an immense uh, experience just like learning uh, over the last one year. Wow. That's awesome. I mean, that sounds like things are going really well. That's pretty cool. Are you guys like, did you start then fully remote? Yeah. 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 Is the company fully remote? Uh, the company does have offices, uh, New York, like LA, SF. And I mean, I can go to the office as well. I just, um, I go in like once in a while if I can. I don't go in all the time. Okay. Um, but I mean, it's, it's, it's truly a, uh, I, 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 I have a lot of meetings in a given day, so I prefer to be at home so I can just be comfortable while I take my meetings. But I, I will say for me, the optimal way of um, working is in an office with people. I, I, there's something about the energy that like just absolutely like, gets me going. Yeah. Um, I'm also kind of spoiled because uh, back in when I was running Wildfire, like my office was walking distance from me. Like all my offices were like super walking distance. Okay. Like 10 minutes away walking distance. So like, I feel like I was a little bit spoiled back then, and now I have to be like, oh, like I gotta take public transport to my office. <laughs> Boo hoo. Yeah. Well, no, I feel you. Yeah. But uh, I, I can agree. Like, I, I definitely enjoy being, being in person and stuff right. too. So, 
no, I mean that's a great story. I mean, it's really Thank it's you, really man. cool to hear kind of like the the growth from wildfire and transitioning into open door. And Thank stuff, you. So yeah, it's pretty sick. So you know, because of this amazing story, you were recognized on as one of Forbes thirty under thirty. So, what has that been like? Um, man, it's 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 definitely an honor, right? Like it's it's awesome. Uh, I, I'm I'm very like I was very thrilled because the way the Forbes things work is that like you get nominated by someone else, you send in your information to them, and you don't hear back from Forbes until the list is actually published. So you're kind of just like, really? yeah, you don't hear back from them at all. You don't even know any, any next steps. You know that you've been nominated. They ask you for some basic information. You send them the basic information. That's it. So somebody who was previously on the list has to nominate you, you said? No, anyone can nominate you. Anyone. Yeah. And for us, from our side, our nomination was from our, like, I think, uh, like, like our former, like an investor or something like that probably nominated us. We, I still don't know to this day who nominated us, really. Oh. I didn't really ask. Wow. Um, it's, been a, it's been a great honor, man. But, like, I also, like, want to be, like, completely honest that like and once again hot take and I, also it's a hot take but also i can say it I, I i think it i'll just say it and we'll kind of go from there i i think forbes is good but it's also a complete vanity bullshit as well yeah. and i think we should be able to call it what it is sure. forbes is not going to help me get my next like it's going to help me get my next job in terms of like it, it's a very beautiful thing that looks really shiny it's a veneer esque thing on my resume and it's like not a lot of people have that it's great but i don't think for a second forbes in any way quantifies anyone's intelligence level or in any way speaks to their character or in any way speaks to how intelligent someone is i think forbes can be hacked to a certain extent and is not exactly a like an accolade that proves um anything past a certain point and 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 that's my personal thought now are there a bunch of smart, smart, brilliant people that are on Forbes? Absolutely. Absolutely. But just like our college, we're like every college has brilliant people, but every college, including Harvard, even has like not very smart people as well. You're going to find the same thing in Forbes. It's, it's an eclectic mix of people from a variety of backgrounds that like some people got there through hard work and some people got there through, you know, like knowing the right people and pushing the right buttons and getting there. Yeah. I, I just don't think... Much like YC, I just don't think people can bank on Forbes 330 catapulting them into the next phase of their life or anything like that. It is an honor, and it is an honor to be on the list, but that's all it really is. Yeah. Like, like, it, it, like I, I've met a lot of Forbes 330 people, and they're all really, really dope people. They're really nice people. But I wouldn't say any of them are, like, a vast majority of them are, like, any more, like, intelligent or any more, like, world-changing capable than like any of the peers that we really have and i think like what separates a lot of my peers from them is that like they took a risk maybe or they 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 had a way to get there and stuff like that and and i i, I admire that and i applaud that but i don't know like uh i just don't think forbes is a metric of success if that makes no, sense no definitely not i mean it's a I, I think definitely like i would say like to your point like you're not going to get your next gig because you were on forbes yeah. 30 under 30 you're going to get your next game because of the work you did to get on that list. Sure, so exactly, like, exactly. But once again, like I don't want to seem like I'm ungrateful or anything like that. I'm very, very grateful, and I was honestly shocked when 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 we did get it. I I just see a lot of people that like uh, when people were congratulating me and stuff for that way back in like 2019 or 2020, early 2020. Like people were like, um, people were like conflating it, like uh, like wow, like you've made it. Like you've made it, dude. You're on Forbes 330. You made it, and I was like, 
I was like, no, like I, I believe that like this is like once again like a stepping stone towards something greater. And I think that's the best way to think about like any accolade that we get, right? Um, it is a stepping stones towards something like greater. And like, how do you leverage Forbes to get what you want rather than just like Forbes is the goal, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, very, very, very thrilled for my team. Uh, we definitely like worked very hard to get there. So like, yeah. I don't, I'm not trying to discount that at all. Too. No, that's cool. I mean, it was definitely, it's definitely, it was definitely cool to like find out. Yeah. You know, I was kind of like preparing for this and stuff. So. Um, yeah, I have the plaque right there. Oh, there it is. Yeah. That's dope. Yeah. All three of you, you co-founded. Yeah. Nice. That's sick. Um, so one thing I did want to also kind of get into, and this mm-hmm. is a shout out to Shruti. Um, shout out Shruti. We're going to talk about Nathri. Yeah. So. Um, I guess what is what is Nathri? Global. Yeah, man. So uh, I feel like everyone has a very different definition of what Nathri means to them, right? And for me, um, Nathri to me means empowering people that don't look like me, that didn't have the same chances as me, that didn't have the same luck, upbringing, opportunities as me, and doing whatever I can in my power to help them have the same opportunities that I did, so that they can be even more successful than me, regardless of anything that has been an impediment for them. And, 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 and Nathri specifically um, is, is like their mission is how are we, or Nathri's Future Fund, which is like what I, what I work on specifically, is how are we coming to, like Nathri's Future Fund is a fund of primarily women of color LP coming together to put money into companies that are built by women of color that are building phenomenal products that are changing the world. And um, for me, getting involved in the ground floor was a, was such a, was such a beautiful experience. Um, after the acquisition, I was talking to Shruti, shout out Shruti, and um, talking to Shruti and, and Sam, her husband, we were at, um, we were at uh, dinner together. And um, I was telling her, I'm like, yeah, like now that I've sold, like I'm looking to sink my teeth into like giving back in ways because um, like, I would love to have that opportunity. And she was like, oh, like you should talk to Maitali. Like you should get involved in this and let me tell you more about this. And the more I heard about it, I was like, oh, like, damn, like this is, this is something that I feel like one, I could learn a lot from as well, because obviously like uh, I'm, I'm a, I'm a male in like a highly female space. So I feel like there's a lot that I could learn from those situations as well. And also um, it's an opportunity for me to like give back what I've learned to these people that are maybe just starting their entrepreneurship journey right now or, or like, anything like that. Also, um, VCs sometimes get crap for not always being founder empathetic. Like they're thinking about things from a VC perspective, but not a founder perspective. And I oftentimes think the best VCs are founders or were founders in some capacity in the past. And I think being able to relate to founders as a former founder and being able to talk to them is something that I could actually do really well for Nathan and help them out. So I joined Nathan. I think it's been about a year at this point, a little over a year, and I, I kind of lead up their investment operations. Um, a lot and really just how it shaped you as a person yeah man um 
I, it's so interesting, right? I feel like growing up, um, my parents had like very high standards, very high expectations, right? Like right. I feel like that's fairly easy to say for a lot of immigrant families. Um, lots of pressure, like, um, but it, it was interesting, right? Like it was a lot of pressure, but they never actually like, told me that you need to become a lawyer, you should become a doctor, you should become an engineer. My, my mom studied physics, my dad studied engineering and business and then and astrophysics and my sister did bioengineering and you know i didn't do any of that so so like there was no pressure for me to study anything specific but they were just like you should be good at math because it's good to be good at math you should be good at science because it's good to be good at science and not because they wanted me to enter a certain field and i think i, I used to be annoyed at my parents because i was just an edgy teen back in the day but as i've grown up and i've seen how my other friends were raised i realized that how lucky that i actually got based on the fact that my parents don't put pressure, never put like directional pressure that you have to be this and that and that. And the only reason my mom even put pressure on the be lawyer thing is because I'm the one that wanted to be a lawyer. I'm yeah. the one that kind of like did that. And my mom was like, if you are going to be a lawyer, be a lawyer that does good for people. You know, uh, that, that's where it came from. Now, after I got older, like in college, I don't know what happened. My parents stopped giving a shit about everything. They were just like, yeah, you'll figure it out. Yeah, we trust you. Yeah, maybe this, but you know, you'll figure it out. And I'm like, where's all this like nonsense coming from? Like, uh, like you guys were so hands on for so long. Yeah. What are you gonna do? And depending on my depending on my parents' mood, whether they're annoyed at me or whether they're happy at me, they'll give me two different answers. One answer when they're annoyed will be like, you were never gonna listen to me anyways. So what's the point of telling you? <laughs> Your classic answer. The answer when they're actually happy with me is that like. We trust that we've raised you well enough that you know what to do and that you'll come to me when you need something. Yeah. I'm like, where was all this maturity when you were raising me back in the day? Yeah. You know? No, for sure. I also think it helps that I went to boarding school. So, like, they lost control over me to a certain extent when I turned, like, 13. Yeah. So, they had no control. Uh-huh. Anything from how I studied, my grit, nothing. That no control. I think letting go is a really hard thing to do for any parents. Definitely. For most things, yeah. But I think it's because they had to let go at such a young age for me that it um that it actually did really help. I will say my parents let me live my life on my own terms. When I joined Cal, I didn't join as a public policy guy. I joined as a legal studies and theater acting major, and my parents were actually very cool with it. Yeah. Now, why were they cool with it? I will never know because in fact, a couple of years after that, I was like, why would you guys let me do that? That is such an irresponsible decision that I made. Why would you let me do that? And they were like. You would never have listened to us anyways. And then, like, you would have realized it yourself eventually. But, um, yeah, my parents let me live life on my own terms. And I'm great. I'm, I'm very grateful for that. And whenever I hear other people talk about their relationship with, like, their parents, I, I recognize, like, how uh, privileged I am to have, like, parents that really respected, like, what I want to do. And, like, I'm curious if you ask my sister, who was older and also a woman, like, whether she would have the same story to tell you and the same experiences. I bet my ass she wouldn't. Yeah. I bet my ass it would be completely different. She also lived at home. Different story altogether. Yeah. So, but my experiences are this, and I can only speak from my experiences. Right? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I guess my, mine was similar in some ways, different in other ways. Like, so I had an older brother and mm-hmm. a younger sister. So my older brother was like the studious, you know, and what I would really describe him as just much more efficient mm-hmm. in, in what he in what he did. And I think one of the lessons I've learned over, you know, now that I'm 27 years old, like it's, instead of striving for excellence, you should strive for efficiency. Yeah. Because I mean, 
everything follows efficiency. And yeah. so like my brother was the one that was like, okay, you know, I have a test in three days. Let me study for an hour today, fully focused, not going to be distracted, study for an hour tomorrow, review for the, the day before. I'm going to take the test. I'm going to get an a, a on it. And it was just like, it just came so naturally. pretty naturally to him. I mean, it's just like, it doesn't really, why would, why would I get distracted? I, I can focus now for an hour and then do whatever I want after. Like, yeah. it doesn't make sense to get distracted. And for me, it was like, yeah, like, I don't, I don't really want to do it now. My head's just kind of spinning in seven different directions. Uh, and then, you know, all of a sudden the test is the next day and uh, I'm not prepared for it at all. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't the best student, yeah. you know, like, really it wasn't until, really it wasn't until, like, probably towards the end of junior year that I figured it out. Mm-hmm. And, like, senior year, I had a pretty solid senior year, but then I also, because I was an athlete, and I was, I was lucky that my parents never took athletics away from me. Mm-hmm. So I know most Indian parents from my understanding, don't really place much of a value mm-hmm. on athletics. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I've seen that be a detriment to a lot of their kids. And I've seen it be like, and if they do focus, it's like a lot of times, and it's not a knock to anyone who has excelled in these sports. And I, I really want to make that clear. It's like, I just really, really feel like it's like, okay, you want to play sports? Okay, tennis and golf. Yeah. Those are your only options. Mm-hmm. You can't play soccer because, you know, I don't, want, I don't want the ball bouncing off your head and giving yeah. you a concussion. Yeah. I don't want you to break your ankles or whatever. Yeah, like you that. can't play football. Yeah. F- football. Okay. I can maybe get it, but mm-hmm. it's like, you can't play basketball because mm-hmm. you know, you know, it's, I, I think a lot of the reasons are come from really bad, bad places. So yeah. I don't know. I, and I know what places you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, let's just put it out there. I just think like, you know, I think a lot of Indian families see basketball. It's like, Oh, it's, it's only for tall African-American men. It's, it's, it's not you. It's yeah. like, you know, no one's saying you're going to have to make the NBA. But, yeah. You know, you just have to learn. Time. Yeah. Learn how to be on a team. Yeah. That's all that you're really learning. Totally agree. Um, but anyway, you know, they, they never took that away from me. Um, it wasn't until I, my senior year, like I had said, I'd already, because of swimming, I was a swimmer growing up. I'd committed to going to Loyola University, mm-hmm. like October of my senior year. So, of course, you know, senior writers just kicked in and like I the only class I really did well in was calculus, mm-hmm. AP calculus, which is also funny because I was just atrocious at math. Really? Like, God awful at math. And I work in finance now. Wow. So it's like, it's, <laughs> it's all, I work in accounting and finance. So it's just That's all. That's unbelievable. Just, yeah. Even my dad's like mesmerized. But kind of to your same point, like through, through high school, I kind of butted my parents and stuff about that. Once I, and I, and I went through a little bit of ups and downs before I got to college, but once I got settled in college, they kind of like left, let, let me go. And my dad, you know, was out here recently. He did say like, you know, I did finally feel some relief though when I saw your college degree, mm. which is hilarious because then he lost it. Like it's legit nowhere to be found. In my really? House. It's yeah. so funny. <laughs> so if I ever want to put it up on the wall, I got to order a new one. Yeah. But, um, you know, like that, that element of pressure, I think, is I, sometimes I wonder where it, where it all comes from and like where what why specifically like do is it that you know Asian and Indian families have that reputation of being tiger parents and tiger dads and I was curious like what what are, what are your kind of thoughts on that man I, I don't think it ever comes from a bad place and I, I want to be honest about that I, I don't I don't foresee myself being the same kind of parent that uh, my parents would be towards me because I think I've had a different set of experiences I'm also not a first generation immigrant right yeah. 
But I think it's because I think it's because they had hopes and dreams, but they were so focused on surviving that they never got a chance to live the life that they wanted. So they hoped that by putting those hopes and dreams into us, we won't make those same mistakes. We'll get to live our lives. But obviously, like I think they don't know where to stop and what that line is and all that kind of stuff yeah. because they're just so mesmerized by the element of like, look at like in this country, you could be this regardless of this, this yeah. and this. And I think that is why so many of them come to America at the end of the day, right? So I will never fault my parents for the pressure they put on me because when I think back to the hopes and dreams that my parents had, like my mom got married and she was 21, right? Mm -hmm. Like what could my mom have done if she didn't get, not that you can't get married and do both, but I feel like it's different. Like yeah. when you're in India and like you get married off, you know? Yeah. And my dad, like, like sure, like he had a very fruitful life, but like imagine if my dad was like not focused on money and sending money back to his parents and sending money back to his family. Sure. But he was focused on like art alongside of this. Like, what could have life been like? Yeah. So, I, but I feel like we'll never really know. Yeah. But I had the opportunity to do everything and I decided this path. Right. And I feel like that's, that's what's beautiful. And that's the way I kind of see it. And I, yeah. I, don't, I don't fault my parents, but I'm very proactive in trying to correct my parents exactly. in, in, in their thoughts as we get older and stuff. Yeah, know? and it, it actually took me a little bit, a little bit of time to like, be, be mature enough to kind of realize that like you can never really blame your find fault with your parents about it, it, at least in these terms of like how we were raised you can't really find fault you can't blame them for anything yeah. they everything was done with good intention and you only know what you know like, yeah. and you can only raise someone the way you see best it's gonna happen to us too it's right. gonna be like you know eventually like i think th these problems they just they just they just become different generation to generation. Like totally, I don't, who knows what kids like when once we have kids, like what they're gonna be like, right. and what life in society is gonna be like. Then, right. and you know, we we were so used to like, you know, being pushed to get good grades and go to college. But I mean, who knows if like ten years from now, kids are even going to college? They might just start working right right out of high school. And, right, and also like, I don't know. I'm a big believer that I mean, I don't know. Once again, like we'll, we'll see what kind of a parent I am when I if I ever become a parent. But like. I I don't think college is for everyone. And I think that's okay to say that. I think yeah. some people thrive better. Like, I think some people, if, if they know what they want, can, like, for example, like, I don't, like, a lot of great coders that I know didn't go to college, they do fine. Like, yeah. similarly, like, there are trade schools that people can go to to learn the trade that they want if they're confident that's what they want. I do also believe that college is a good fallback yeah. as well because, like, if you have a degree, you can do a lot of things with that degree that's not necessarily just, like, your trade. Yeah. But once again, that's... That's the taking the risk. That's the taking the risk part, which, you know, you, no sacrifice, no victory. You got to yeah. be able to take a risk somewhere, right? I mean, you're, you're basically, I think the way I look at it is, you know, you're paying, let's just throw in the number 100,000. Yeah. Like you're paying 100,000 to have, if you do it properly and you, maybe not do it properly, but you're paying $100,000 to maybe have four years of your life that you're just going to remember forever. Yeah. You know, four, you're paying 100,000 to meet lifelong friends, you know, to have lifelong experiences. If you, and it's all it's just a number right so if it's not worth it for you if you have other ways around it yeah it's definitely not not something that everyone has to do totally and that's something that i think we're gonna see in generations to come so yeah yeah curious, curious to see all that yeah um you know and i i don't want to get you in trouble yeah but dating and yeah. uh and stuff like that how is that affected like you know we live in the bay area where i think there's definitely a lot of there's a lot of Indian culture around us, a lot of Indian people and whatnot. Like, how has, 
how has your culture and your upbringing kind of affected or how does it impact your dating life? Yeah, man, I, it's so interesting, right? Because I, um, I feel like I've, I've unconsciously and even consciously gravitated towards South Asians in sure. terms of like my dating life as well. Um, and, and every girlfriend that I've had has been South Asian in, in some capacity. And, um, and, and they've all been great, great individuals. And they've also been very like cultured people. I, I like, I take a lot of pride in my culture and I'm a very cultured person, especially given that I like not just Indian culture, like, Double culture specifically with that substrand, that subsection, because I grew up in Tamil Nadu for so many years, I take a lot of pride in that. And for me, it's it's important that my partner is a like, like I don't need them to be singing like Tamil music with me, bouncing that shit in the car, but like a curiosity at least, yeah. you know, like uh, like uh, wanting to get involved because that's what I'm that's what I'm like as well. Like suppose if I was dating a Telugu person, like. For, I mean, side note, I love Telugu music. I love Telugu movies. I watch Telugu movies all the time. And yeah. movies all the time. So, Alu Arjun for life. Um, <laughs> but, but the thing is, like, it's a fascination. It's, an, it's, 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 like, it's like a culture that's different than mine. Even though we're all Indian, it's like even... Yeah. There's a huge difference between North and South Indian. Even within South Indian, there's like so yeah. many different ways. So, it's like, for me, it's like a learning experience on like how you were raised now that's different for me or if we were raised very similarly like we can bend and talk about similar shit growing up and stuff like that but i am a firm believer that like um like there is a difference between um like i don't know how do i phrase this like i don't want to date someone because they're south asian yeah i want to date someone because they're good people that i can relate to and they just happen to be south asian as well okay because at the end of the day, like, my culture will not save my relationship 30 years down the line when we have substantive things that we're going to be fighting about. It's the foundation, the relationship, what we've built. That is what's going to make us compatible, understand the red flags, understand what we have, and that's what's going to be saving us down the line. My girlfriend singing Carnatic music and being, being attracted to that when I'm 25 is not going to be like the shit that saves my relationship like down the line yeah. it's that are we good communicators can we be proactive are we not passive aggressive mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff doesn't discriminate between south asian pakistani like oh, sorry pakistani that's south asian as well but like south asians or white people or whatever like it's it's like you you're compatible with that person or you're kind yeah. of not or you have to find a way to make it work so i i, I don't get me wrong like i've definitely fallen into that victim mindset as well where like um i've been like I, i've made that mistake but like I'm trying my best to make it so that, like, for example, like my current girlfriend, Ioma, like, um, I didn't expect to end up dating like, um, like a, a Tamil, like pretty much like, pretty much my mom's dream and my dad's, <laughs> dream, uh, my mom was my my mom's dream for what my future partner should look like. I didn't expect that to happen, but it so happened that life fell into a path where like i met this wonderful woman and we went down that path to get to know each other and we're so compatible in so many ways and she just so happens to be uh um, sure. xyz you know yeah but i i do wonder and I, I try to check my bias like how much of that is that like my eyes and my ears just like being more attracted to yeah a certain kind of individual because i've been raised with that mindset Versus kind of turning a blind eye to great individuals that I would not have met because, like, you're not conditioned to look that way, right? Mm-hmm. Or I, I, I haven't been conditioned to look that way as much, I'm speaking for myself. Yeah. But, 
those are just like thoughts that we have other thoughts that i just like ruminate on sometimes you know yeah no no i completely agree like i think i feel like a lot of you know indians that i've met who are dating other indians sometimes i feel like don't value the importance of just that that attraction like yeah i feel like because a lot of people try to downplay like yeah i'm not dating her because she's indian of course not but it's like you know i think it's okay to acknowledge the fact that that is a point of attraction we totally. like to, we we enjoy being around people who it's not a, it's not about being around people who are the same as us yeah it's about being around people who are, have a higher tendency of having the same values as us now yeah. at the end of the day you have to actually dissect and make right. sure they do have this yes values. exactly that's like, because that's not always the case exactly but it's really important like for me like it's i think the the most the biggest thing for me is like finding someone who is vegetarian now sure. I would say you're more likely to find someone who's vegetarian who is of South Indian, yeah. South Asian heritage. Yeah, that's but that, even even that I'm starting to realize isn't actually it's really hundred percent true. It's really hard. Yeah. So um, you know, it's just it's a ma- it's a matter of just finding the things that are important to you. And but also I feel like nowadays, like because we're on the apps and we're in a bigger city, a bigger market and stuff, I feel like you're always constantly thinking to yourself that there's something better out there yeah. and you're not willing to like step back and like take our parents' approach of you know my parents had an arranged marriage I'm, mine as well my peers did too like where like the the option wasn't there to like think about you know what if or what if this happened like it was you know our parents were set up by their parents they were married and then they began like a life together there was no like mm-hmm. thinking too much about like you you grow and compromise together instead of growing and compromising to realize whether or not you want to grow together. Yeah, right. And it's, I'm not saying one way is right or wrong. I mean, I obviously I get, I get this from my parents all the time and it's, it's just a mad, it's really like, like, like you said, like it, and it's really, I think really the biggest insight I, I just heard was like, you know, being Indian, being, being South Asian, you know, watching these movies, having the same taste in music, movies, music, you know, dance and whatnot, it's not going to save you from anything of substance later on. Basically. I totally agree. Yeah. yeah so, no, that, that definitely, that's definitely cool to hear and definitely cool to kind of like realize. Yeah, and, and don't get me wrong, man, like I'm, I'm, I, I'm definitely proud to be dating a, a, a South Asian and I'm very, very proud that my, but I'm also simultaneously proud that my girlfriend is a brilliant, uh, beautiful, like heartwarming individual that I relate yeah. to on so many levels that I just feel so proud that I get to date someone like that. But I'm proud of dating her as an individual first before I'm proud of the fact that I'm dating her for the South Asian similarities that we have as well. That's and right. I think, like, for me, like, I, uh, whenever people ask me, like, oh, are you happy that you're, like, dating pretty much like your parents' sweat dream? And I'm like, I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I'm happy, but, like, not at the expense of the fact that we have a lot of commonalities and we're good people together. Yeah. That's just like a bonus. It's, it's a bonus. Exactly. It's a bonus. Yeah. No, that, that, that's really great to hear. Yeah. So before we jump into, I have a rapid fire question around. Okay. Before we jump into that, I want to rewind a little bit. Sure. So when you were talking about with Wildfire, mm-hmm. the uh, kind of the clubhouse, the, what was it called? The, the audio, audio rooms. Audio rooms. Right. I'm really curious, where is the best place to shit on Berkeley's campus? <laughs> that's a good question, man. Shit, man. Uh, <laughs> it depends on what you're trying to optimize for, right? My ops ass answer there. What are, are you trying to optimize for lack of people and complete like privacy, or are you trying to yes. optimize for like yeah. comfort? Uh, Let's say lack of people. Lack of people and privacy. 
Um, so there's a there's a big hall on campus called VLSB, um, uh, Valley Life Sciences Building, and within Valley Life Sciences Building, there's a library, which is kind of like not a lot of people actually like use like the yeah. upstairs area, and there's a bathroom there that's like nice. Gotcha. This would be my biggest nightmare if this came, which I wish Wildfire came to Pacific for all the other reasons, but if it did come and my secret bathroom was a stolen, called, oh yeah. yeah, I would uh, be heartbroken. Yeah, I'm but sure. We'll leave that right there. Yeah. Need that second <laughs> anyway, all right, before we go, we're going to, let's talk. Right. What are your top five, and I'm going to use the word old school very, very loosely here because I'm going to say 2010s, Okay. which is... Maybe not old school to a lot of people, but you know, given that it's 2022 now, let's, yeah. let's call it. What are your top five? Okay, so I'm going to give you top four because okay. uh, I had difficulty with the, even that. Um, mostly just because like, I'm very bad at rapid fire. Um, so, Ye Jawani Hei Dabani. Banger soundtrack. Oh, yeah. Love that movie. Yes, it's, it's very basic, but like, it does it so well. So, um, and both of them have such good chemistry. Yeah. Uh, well, they were dating at, at one point, but um, Lagan. That's um, on my list. Yeah, right. yeah. Excellent movie. Kind of changed my way of what an epic Bollywood movie could look like. Yeah. Um, I'm a sucker for this movie. It's uh, Mehuna. Yeah. I Great love movie. Mehuna, dude. It is such a... It's such just like a classic fun movie. Uh, it's very serious, but also very like funny as well. Um, and my fourth one, classic, Kabikushi uh, Kabigam. Okay. Um, for me, that's just like... Like, you know what you're like, you know, when you put that shit on three and a half hours of just like tears and okay. laughs and a fun time and a banger cast as well. Dude, it's like such a good time. I'm glad you put that on because I know people are going to be listening to this and they're going to, if I had put it on, people are generally, I feel like people are going to be nice to you. If I had said K3G, I would have gotten shit on. So. Oh no, it's fine. I mean, people are more, I mean, the thing is like, um, with, I will admit that my Bollywood Movie choices are very, uh, probably a little bit basic because uh, I only watch like the big movies that come out, like by big stars, mostly just yeah. because like that's kind of what my friends show me. Yeah. But if this goes into like Telugu movies or Tamil movies or Malayalam movies, I can speak to it a little bit more on more like introspective yeah. stuff because I've seen a lot more of those movies and I'm, I'm more um, culturally in that scene a little bit more. Yeah. Um, but yes, uh, please feel free to shit on me, audience. Uh, <laughs> I know K3G is very basic and I apologize. <laughs> Is that, that was your four? That was my four. What about you? All right. So I've got Suades. Ooh, good. Yeah, so that's the Shadow Khan movie. Now, the rest of the, my next four all have the same main main actor. Okay. Dil Chata Hai. Amir Khan. Lagan. Lagan. That is a meat bud. Great. Great movie. And then the last one, Three Idiots. Three Idiots. Great. Yeah. Great one. So, Dude, I have never cried so hard in a movie like That Is A Meat Bird. Really? Uh, like, I, I, I was like bawling in that movie. Yeah. I was like, I was like, how could they leave their kid in the school? He's yeah. like eight years old. And yeah, and I mean, I, I felt like I really kind of related to that movie. Not, I never went to boarding school or anything yeah, like yeah, that, yeah. but that like, you know, not being able to, I think it became something with my, with my parents, like not being able to understand like why I wasn't learning properly. Yeah. And a lot of it was, I think, just a bad habits. But there was, I think for me, especially with, like I was saying with math, I sucked at math until I got to calculus. Yeah. How does that happen? It's just that I think what ended up happening was I was in, I guess, like on level math, mm -hmm. which as an Indian kid is like, can't do that. You have to bump them up to the next level. And I mean, that's when I was just like, you know, I didn't learn how to add 
105 to 273 mm. properly. Mm. If I can't do that properly, how am I ever gonna figure out like what the coast? You know, yeah. I didn't want to say something stupid. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. How am I supposed to figure out like an algebraic equation, yeah. equation or a trig question? Yeah, like if you don't learn the fundamentals properly, right. okay. So, you know, that's where I definitely really appreciated that movie and how like yeah. you know slowing things down a little bit early, like. It's like it's like that the saying goes like slow and steady wins the race. Right. Like, that I really like it just really resonated with me. And then same with three idiots. And what I really I think three idiots, my what I've noticed is a lot of the older generation, you know, my grandfather, my grandmother, and my you know, even my uncle for that matter, they really hate that movie. Mm. And I think about it, like what do you, what could you possibly hate about that movie? And I realize now it's because that movie exposed the truth yeah. that I think a lot of the older generation face. Yeah, and it it put it in drop it dramatized it. And I'm sh- I know that's really hard to digest, right. but like right. that just shows you how powerful that movie was. Yeah, it really does, and like it packages it into this beautiful um like happy, sad, uh, yeah. plethora of emotions there. So it's a fantastic movie. It's a it's a really good one. Three D is a good one. American even Marvel's in that movie too. That's yeah, that's good stuff. Yeah. yeah. American was here in SF, actually. Yeah, I saw that picture. Yeah. That's so lit. So awesome. Yeah, dude, man. I, I, I'm sure he's glad that I, I didn't bump into him. But I bumped into him, man. <laughs> bro, bro, let's talk about those I thought he was. <laughs> dude, you would have been like, dude, get lost. Get lost. Are you Yeah, at this point, yes. Okay. Um, growing up, I used to watch those movies with subtitles and stuff. Mm-hmm. But my confirmation of me understanding Hindi was reaffirmed. I was just in Austin mm-hmm. at, a, at a wedding. Mm-hmm. And I mean, not a word of English was spoken at this wedding. We played charades in Hindi, and I understood it. So hell yeah, man. you know, and like people, I was talking to people. Everyone's giving me instructions and stuff in Hindi. Now it was actually so exhausting because like it's not like it just automatically clicks. Like yeah, I have to like process it. Just a second, yeah. So like, you know, that was a little bit of a, uh, you know, by the end I was just so mentally drained. But I right. mean, like it was kind of cool. I didn't realize I understood as much as I did until right. finally they were like. I asked, like, what, what room I w- I'm supposed to go to, and they were like, Do and I was like, okay. Oh, yeah. that's nice. That way. Nice. Yeah. So, that's uh, awesome, man. Yeah, it was, it was fun. Yeah. I definitely um, kind of want some, you know, finishing up some stuff in the next couple of months. I want to go spend some time, like, in India again. Right. And going to India by myself, I went in 2019. Right. was just a little different. But, like, this time I want to do it even, even better. Where, yeah. Like, I probably... You know, I mean, of course, I want to go visit family and stuff, but I just want to go explore and stuff. Yeah, definitely. Man. The one it. thing I cannot stand is when I tell people, and it happens a lot with family. I tell people I'm going to India, and they're like, "Okay, make sure you don't say a word to the cat, to the auto driver. Make mm-hmm. sure somebody else does all the talking for you." And this is in Bishakapatnam, like yeah. where like I spent a lot of time as right, a kid. Right, right, like, right. I can speak Telugu. Yeah, it has an accent on it, yeah. but I can speak it fluently. Yeah, um, you know, I know how to talk to. People. Right. I know when I'm getting ripped off. Right. And if I do get ripped off, so be it. I'll yeah. learn. Yeah. It's not like you don't get ripped off here in this country. Absolutely, all like, the time. Yeah. You know, I, I hate that. So, like, yeah. uh, I really want to go and, like, spend some time there and really, like, just go by myself and experience it for what it is. So. Yeah, no, I totally get that, man. Yeah, it's been, it's been a long time since I've been back as well. Yeah. Maybe next year. Yeah. Maybe if I have less weddings next year. <laughs> um, sure. Raja, I wanted to thank you for, uh, like, doing this interview with me and just, like, setting up the time and stuff like that. I know you, you, you're an incredibly busy guy, so thank you for... No, thank you, man. Thank you for kind of just sharing your thoughts, sharing your experiences on the show and stuff. Yeah, wow. yeah this, has been, this has been really fun to start and really been exciting for me to kind of like have a platform to, like I was saying earlier, just like 
document my relationships and my conversations with people and totally. uh i hope and i hope you listeners enjoyed this too really thank you all for joining with us and uh again thank you so much Vinay. thank you roger thank you for listening as well everyone yeah look forward to uh talking again in the future absolutely all right thanks everyone thank you.